Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at the Balkans, an area that dominated international attention 20 years ago after the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, but has slipped from the headlines in recent years. Joining me to discuss the region and its uncertain prospects are the FT's Europe editor, Ben Hall, and our Balkans correspondent, Valerie Hopkins. Ben, the FT this morning described the Balkans as the most volatile region in Europe. Why would you say that? Because historically, it has been a region that has been fought over by competing power blocks, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire. And that has left kind of overlapping national and ethnic and religious divisions. And we are still living with the legacy of that. And it's sort of overlaid by an incomplete transition to democracy and the rule of law after communism. And then probably on top of all of that, you have corruption and it's deeply rooted. So, Ben, before we continue, let's just define the region. How big is it and how significant? So we're talking about the Western Balkans region, roughly 20 million people, about the population of the Netherlands, but with a really tiny economy about the size of Slovakia's. And we're talking about Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Albania, North Macedonia, and Kosovo, of course. So it's a pretty small number of people with a pretty small combined GDP. It's not significant, but it's always been a source of instability, as we've known for the last century. Valerie, Ben referred to this as a kind of incomplete process, and some of the countries in the regions, maybe all of them, have hoped that their ultimate destination will be joining the EU. I'm thinking particularly of North Macedonia and Albania, but they're finding it very hard. Yes, well, that's true. They've been hoping to join, but also the EU has been hoping for them to join. I mean, for the first time, this was articulated in 2003 in their first EU summit in Thessaloniki. All of the countries of the Western Balkans were promised a credible path to accession and were given unequivocal support from the EU member states. And one year ago, after North Macedonia and Albania underwent quite comprehensive changes, North Macedonia to its name and to other reforms, and Albania committing to a very onerous judicial reform, were promised that they would get a green light this year. And as we saw yesterday, that decision was punted again for a couple of months, at least until October. And from their point of view, how much of a disaster is that? Well, it's quite a big disaster. I mean, in North Macedonia, which recently changed its name in order to end a decades-long conflict with Greece over their name, which Athens believed implied territorial desire over the Greek region of the same name, the whole public support for the agreement and public support for the government is riding on the guarantees towards progress towards the EU that are written into that. So North Macedonia has moved forward in terms of its NATO membership. Several countries, I think, have already ratified the NATO accession protocol for them. But, you know, the European Union membership is what the public really wants. And at a certain point, it may become untenable for the leaders of the country to stay in power if they can't deliver on what was promised them. And that would be a disaster for them and for Europe. Yeah, I mean, Ben, you've been pretty critical of the EU's decision. What's the argument for saying the EU is being short-sighted? That it had a unique window of opportunity to 
put these two countries more firmly on the path of adjustment to EU rules and EU values and sort of binding them into the EU orbit. We have to remember that the sort of enlargement process, if you just put aside the various problems that we've experienced over the years, in the grand sweep of history, it's been a remarkable success for the EU. It's stabilised the region, it's brought prosperity, and it's dissolved the division between East and Western Europe. And the enlargement, Um, just to recap for those who don't totally recall, took the EU from, what, 15 countries to now 28. 28, yeah. And so enlargement is probably the most effective European Union foreign policy. And it has helped put countries on the right path and stabilise democracy and promote reform and promote the rule of law. But perhaps there are now plenty of people in the EU who think we've reached the end of that process and that legacy problems from previous enlargements have come back to haunt the EU and maybe the enlargement, the accession process was not rigorous enough. And so now there are plenty of people who are having second thoughts about it. Yeah, and I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I suppose if you're a European politician, you will say, well, sure, the future of these countries matters. But as you were saying earlier, it's 20 million people. And here you... You have the rise of populists across Europe in places like France, the Netherlands, Britain's voted for Brexit. And it doesn't appear that accession to countries like Albania is popular. So perhaps they're wise not to do it. Quite possibly. But I mean, I think the calculation has to be how long can you keep these countries on the path to accession without ever actually giving them accession at the end of the day. And that's obviously something that the EU has tried with Turkey, and it's backfired arguably spectacularly, although you could also blame Prime Minister Erdogan, perhaps Recep Tayyip Erdogan, for the kind of backsliding in democracy and the sort of drift away from the European mainstream in Turkey. But, I mean, that is clearly the calculation. It would be good for Europe if Albania could be put on the path to membership, even if it never actually meets the criteria to join fully. And you mentioned Albania. Valerie, you've just back from there. Give us a description of where the country is in terms of its economy and its politics. Because when I was growing up, Albania was like the most isolated place. It was the North Korea of Europe. And the idea that it might even be close to joining the European Union in some ways seems miraculous. Well, indeed it is. And it's quite far off. But I think, you know, to build on what Ben said, many member states have grown tired of the process and have learned that they need to impose further and further restrictions. We see that many of the countries that have joined in recent decades still have problems with their judicial systems. So we're talking countries like Romania, Bulgaria. Yes, uh, Hungary, if I may say. So the conditions and the demands that Brussels and the EU member states have made on countries which are hoping to join have actually become much more onerous. Albania, my story that I did while I was in Tirana was about the extremely onerous vetting process that all judges and prosecutors are being subjected to, which has left the country's Supreme Court with only two judges. One of them, I think, is being vetted this week. So it may have only one judge. So far, only one judge survived. The Constitutional Court, I believe, has only one judge, which is actually quite destabilizing on the political scene now as the parliament has moved to impeach the president for calling early elections and no one in the constitutional court can judge on this. I don't want to get too deep into their politics, but I would like to say too that Albania has also accepted to host the first Frontex mission, Frontex being the EU's border police agency, because during the 2015 migrant crisis, 
the EU sort of realized and woke up and remembered that actually all of these countries on the Balkan route are inside of Europe, that if you have weak states, weak police, weak institutions, uh, that will have consequences for the security and safety of the rest of the bloc. So there should be more interest in improving those institutions and the best way to do it. All of the academic work that's been done in the Balkans shows that the carrot of enlargement and of a real credible accession path is the best way to inspire reforms. But how is the economy doing and how connected is Albania to the rest of Europe now compared to those days of isolation? I mean, silly anecdote, but, you know, I come across Albanians in London now, you know, Albanian builders around the corner. So to some extent, they seem to have been integrated a little bit. Well, absolutely. I mean, quite a significant portion of Albanians left the country in the 90s in search for jobs, uh, better opportunities. And I think it's rare to meet an Albanian who doesn't speak at least two or three languages. But now people are coming back. Business ties between Albania and especially Italy, Switzerland, UK are very strong. And the economy is growing. I think actually in the Balkans, the economies are growing much faster than the EU average, about 4 5%. 5%. They still have a long way to go to catch up, but there's quite a lot of vitality in there. And what about this issue of organized crime, which is thrown at all the countries in the Balkans, but I think particularly at Albania? For those sitting in Brussels or elsewhere saying, do we really want a country in that condition inside the EU? How serious is the problem? Well, it is a serious problem. And, it, you know, it, it also goes to show that, again, you can't separate the Balkans, even, you know, with uh, Albania or North Macedonia or anyone not being inside of the EU. Criminals will always find a way to engage in their activity. It seems to me in some of my discussions with police, judges, prosecutors, that sometimes this threat is overblown. For instance, the Dutch parliament several weeks ago passed a bill asking their government to withdraw the visa-free travel for Albanians due to organized crime. And then when you go in and talk to Dutch officials, they say, actually, this is not necessarily for violent crime. A lot of people are trying to get on boats. Maybe they're trying to come to the UK, but actually they're not necessarily being arrested for trafficking in drugs or persons. Right. And Ben, turning to the other country we were talking about, North Macedonia, that, I suppose, makes the point that this is also still an issue to some extent of war and peace. I mean, they had extremely tense relations with Greece for some time. Yes, they have done over the dispute over their name after the collapse of the former Yugoslavia. And that, of course, has prevented Macedonia, North Macedonia, as it's now called, integration into the Atlantic community, the EU and NATO. So, I mean, it really was a huge step forward when Zoran Zaev and Alexis Tsipras, the Greek premier, achieved this deal. And it's still highly contentious in Greece. And we have a general election next month in Greece where you are likely to see the return of a centre-right new democracy-led government. And new democracy has been very, very critical of the naming deal with North Macedonia. It remains to be seen whether they will actually go as far as to block their entry. But I suspect Athens will be a lot less accommodating in the future than it has been over the last couple of years. And if I recall correctly, at the time, there was some evidence which the Tsipras government acted on that Russian espionage or intelligence agencies were trying to stoke up opposition to the North Macedonia settlement. Does that raise also, I suppose, a subsidiary issue, but a crucial one which affects Europe's judgment, which is that to the extent that this area is not integrated with the rest of the EU, it becomes a sort of floating space. And there is now evidence that not just the Russians, but also the Turks and even the Chinese are taking an interest in the Western Balkans. Absolutely. I suspect 
it's possible to maybe overplay the extent of Russian influence, although it has been substantial and acute in some places, such as the attempted coup in Montenegro and this attempt to stoke up resistance to the referendum on the name change deal in North Macedonia, which the Greeks were pro-Russian country actually expelled some Russian diplomats accusing them of spying. The Turks are obviously increasingly involved in Bosnia, Herzegovina and Albania and in Kosovo. And the Chinese spot an opportunity to extend their influence through commerce and through infrastructure spending. So yeah, we're replaying centuries of history where this region has been a kind of plaything for the great powers. And of course, I suppose it's easier for Europe to ignore to the extent that these are bubbling, acute problems, but there are lots of problems, as long as it doesn't actually break out into violence. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the programme that the broader Balkan region, we were at war 20 years ago. Is there a danger of the old conflicts coming bubbling back? Or is it more that we're talking about serious but subsidiary issues of people flows, economic crises, organised crime and so on? Is there a danger of real war? Well, I think you'd be foolish to rule out the danger of a return to conflict in this area in the sense that 40 years ago you might have done the same thing, but history has shown how quickly this place can erupt into flames. And I suspect that remains, although I'm sure it has reduced in the last 10, 20 years. And there is more at stake for the region's inhabitants if they have a clear path to EU membership, which will bring guarantees of security and better economic prospects. And at the end of the day, I have the firm feeling that it's often corrupt politicians who have their own economic interests at heart who are perpetuating the kind of ethnic divisions in this region more than popular convictions. And Valerie, you're a correspondent on the ground. So how stable or unstable does it seem to you? Well, I do agree with Ben that seemingly innocuous crises can escalate. And I think that in most of the countries, you really do have this kind of boiling the frog situation where I, as a correspondent, struggle with this sometimes seemingly small jumps in a story actually could carry larger consequences later. But I think rather than conflict, the major risk is just that the country will empty out with people losing hope that they will be able to create a better life for their children and grandchildren. For instance, in Bosnia, which has a population of three and a half million, in the last three or four years, I think 200,000 people left. Since January, some 30,000 people have already left the country. And that's when I talk to people, it's really a matter of losing hope that they will join the European Union and have a better life. So these countries will suffer a catastrophic demographic decline and Western Europe will find if they don't integrate them, they'll show up on their doorsteps. Yes, well, many of them actually are getting jobs in Western Europe, which are empty. You know, these are educated workers, doctors, dentists, health workers, social workers. So it's not the same as um, migrant crisis. Most of them are going legally with work permits, but they're leaving their home countries for good. Okay, well, on that note, we'll have to leave it. Thank you very much indeed to Valerie Hopkins here in the studio and to Ben Hall as well. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.